Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode takes us back to Pascagoula, Mississippi, the same city where serial killer Samuel Little, featured in Murder in 20, Visions of Death podcast, sought out some of his victims. The small city borders the Pascagoula River, which supports its marine industry, and today has a population of about 21,000. Back in 1980, it reached an all-time high of almost 30,000. Jamie Kellum and Catherine Foster both grew up and attended high school in Pascagoula. Jamie was an honor student and a star athlete, but had a troubled home life. Catherine, on the other hand, was one of seven children. She was on the quiet side, reserved and soft-spoken, but well-liked with lots of friends at her Catholic high school. And Susie was her best friend. Catherine and Tom Yowden dated in high school and were in love. Jamie had also fallen in love, but with another woman's boyfriend. She fantasized about him constantly. That man would turn out to be Tom. Catherine did well in school and had plans to become a physical therapist. She even received a scholarship to the University of Mississippi, but chose the University of South Alabama because it was the best place to go for her chosen field, and it was a bonus that Tom was going there too on a soccer scholarship. The University of South Alabama, or South as it's called, is reminiscent of a small town it sits on 1,200 acres of manicured grounds with buildings dotting its landscape. In the center stands proud a five-story red brick bell tower with walking paths radiating out from it. South is known for its sports programs and has produced many NFL players. Susie decided to go to South as well and the best friends were excited to be together. Investigation Discoveries episode on Nightmare Next Door Named Catherine, It's Me the Killer, recalled how on registration day her and Catherine ran into Jamie. The trio from Pascagoula hung out, often going for a bite to eat or shopping. The university was a safe place for 6,000 students, many who lived on campus and strolled the local streets. Jamie used their inner circle to continue her obsession with Tom, and at some point in their freshman year, she decided Catherine had to go. She could never be with Tom as long as she was around. Jamie stole a 22 handgun from her grandmother and hid it until the time was right. A week after Valentine's Day in 1980, the three women had plans to meet and go shopping. It was a Thursday and Jamie and Catherine left their apartment on campus and hopped into Jamie's car. Not far into their drive, Jamie mentioned she needed to find some plants for her botany class and suggested they take a walk in the wooded area next to the university. 
As they headed into the treat area, Jamie made sure that Catherine led the way. Just far enough into the woods, with no one around, Jamie pulled out the stolen handgun, raised her arm, and pointed it at Catherine, and pulled the trigger. The bullet hit Catherine in the back of the head. Her body spun around, and she stared at Jamie with a look of shock. Blood was dripping from the wound in her head, and she staggered, stepping in her wet blood. Then she slumped to the forest floor and landed on her back. Jamie walked up and could see she was still alive. She bent down and fired a second shot into her right temple. Jamie was sweating and shaking uncontrollably. Everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. All she could hear was a loud roar in her head. She had just killed her friend, and she couldn't think. But she knew she had to run. She sped back to her car and drove back to campus. There, she threw the gun into a big dumpster. Then she stood by waiting for Susie. By the time Susie appeared around noon, Jamie had calmed down and pretended like nothing had happened. She told Susie that Catherine had gone with Tom and it would just be the two of them going shopping. Susie wasn't really surprised. She knew Catherine and Tom liked spending time together. But when Susie returned to classes that afternoon, she noticed Catherine wasn't at her 2 p.m. class, and that was highly unusual. Catherine was very reliable and a serious student. She would never miss a class. Susie started asking around if anyone had seen Catherine, and no one had. She found Tom in the library and asked him where she was, because he would know, right? But he hadn't seen her. The two sped off and enlisted other students in helping them look for Catherine. Then they contacted campus security. A few hours later, Susie made the dreaded call to Catherine's parents, Joanne and Walker, to tell them she was missing. They drove immediately to South, then to the police station. But Catherine was 18 and considered an adult. She couldn't be reported missing until 24 hours had passed. Back at South, Susie and Jamie made up missing posters with Catherine's picture and posted them throughout the university and handed them out to students. 24 hours had passed and Catherine's parents returned to the police station. Catherine Foster was officially listed as missing. The Mobile Police Department spoke to security at the university and set up an office on campus to take statements from possible witnesses. Saturday, February 23rd was a cool February day. That afternoon, Catherine had been missing for 48 hours. Student searchers were scouring the wooded area next to the university, stepping through the underbrush and winding their way away from the road. Then, someone let out a scream. Catherine's body had been found. She still laid in the exact spot where she had fallen. Her hair and makeup were perfect. Her clothes didn't have a wrinkle or spot on them. It was as if someone had carried her and placed her body down gently. Catherine's shooting was the first in South's history. 
By the next day, police had 35 detectives working on her murder. A reward of $21,000 had been set up. Detectives felt she knew her killer, as she wouldn't have gone anywhere with someone she didn't know. The Selma Times Journal reported that homicide detective Sergeant John Wayne Boone believed the killer was a student who lived on campus or a friend of a student who had visited the campus and was familiar with it. And he believed that the killer was a male and a disturbed person. The medical examiner had determined that due to the pristine condition of her body, Catherine had been dead for only 24 hours when she was found. Detectives wondered where she'd been for the first 24 hours. There were no signs of a struggle. She hadn't been physically or sexually assaulted. Where had she been? A student reported that she'd gone to bed Friday night in her dorm room and had woken up at 2.30 a.m. and opened the window for fresh air. Then she heard two loud pops. Sounds that could have been gunfire, or a car backfiring, or perhaps a firecracker, as it was Mardi Gras. Two campus security guards also heard the loud bangs. Detectives interviewed students, including her boyfriend Tom and her close friends Susie and Jamie. All three were very distraught. Detectives learned that Tom had kissed another girl at a party a few days earlier, and Catherine had witnessed it and was upset. They asked Tom to take a polygraph test, and he did. And he failed. But detectives' instincts told them that he was just distraught. Tom didn't murder Catherine. A week later, Susie, Jamie, and Tom attended Catherine's funeral in her hometown of Pascagoula. Her family drew strength and support from their church community. She was laid to rest at the historic Krebs Cemetery. In their investigation, detectives learned of a maintenance worker at the university with a criminal background, including assault, and focused her investigation on him. He had picked up a female university student whose appearance was very similar to Catherine's, and when she was inside his truck, he tried to sexually assault her. She managed to fight him off and escape, and as she was running away, he shot her in the leg. But she survived to tell her story. In their interview, they asked him where he was at the time of Catherine's murder, but he had an alibi, and it checked out, and he was excluded as a suspect. A year had passed since Catherine's murder, and on February 22, 1983, mobile police were called to a suicide. Michael Maris had been a security guard at South when Catherine was murdered, and police were shocked at what they found in his house. AL.com, a news source in Alabama, reported that Michael had taken his life with more than 200 sleeping pills. Inside his home, police found numerous articles about Catherine's murder clipped from newspapers. He had also obtained a copy of her autopsy report, and he'd written on it and highlighted sections. He'd wrote poetry for Catherine and a letter to the editor of the campus newspaper about her murder. Then the scene got even more bizarre when they ventured into a room above his garage. There they found a room made from wire, Inside the enclosure was a bed. They wondered, is this where Catherine spent her missing 24 hours? 
That might explain why she had no marks on her body. Did Michael commit suicide over his guilt of taking her life? But once police delved into his history, they discovered the caged room was used for a family member with dementia. It was meant to keep them safe while they slept so they couldn't wander. They also discovered that, sadly, suicide seemed to run in his family. His mother had also taken her life in addition to other relatives. Michael was cleared as a suspect. Then the case went cold and stayed that way for years. Detectives, though, never gave up. It stayed on their minds, and for some, they thought of Catherine every day. Over the years, time hadn't been kind to Jamie. She never did end up with Tom. In fact, he always sensed that she had something to do with Catherine's murder. Jamie had married and had two daughters. She also became a criminal, with a theft conviction, among others, and spent time in prison. When she was released, she moved into a homeless shelter in Jackson. In 2002, it had been 22 years since Jamie had murdered her friend. She was now 41 years old and attending Alcoholics Anonymous in Pascagoula. A friend in the group named Bobby suggested she write an apology as one of AA's steps to make amends for their wrongdoing. Jamie wrote a three-page letter to Catherine and took it to a gravesite to read it aloud. In her handwriting, she wrote, and I quote, Dear Catherine, after all these years, I have come to you. It is me, Jamie, the girl who took your life. I don't know where to begin. I was your friend, but I was obsessed with Tom, and you were in my way. She said that Tom hated her after her death, and that although no one could prove that she had shot Catherine, she thought many people suspected she had, and that her life was shattered afterwards. She acknowledged that she'd robbed Catherine's family and loved ones of a future with her, and that she'd been a good girl that cared about people, and had traveled to Mexico to help the poor, and that Jamie had wiped out all the good in one evil selfish moment. She continued with, I came here to make amends to you, but there is no way I can make amends for killing you. There is no way to make things right. But at least I want you to know that I realize what a horrible thing I did. I have often thought, Kate, that to make things right, I should take my life. But I am too afraid and I think that as broken as I am, my children need me. She ended the letter with, I don't know what else to say, Katie, so goodbye. She left the letter unsigned. On December 4th, Bobby couldn't shake the feeling that he had to tell someone what he knew. He phoned the mobile police and told the detective that he had information on a murder from 1980. He tells him the killer is Jamie Lutzen. Now, Detective Mike Morgan is very familiar with the cold case, but he doesn't recall anyone by the name of Lutzen. He does remember a Jamie Kellum. Could it be the same person? He investigates her background and discovered her married name is Lutzen, 
and that she has a criminal history for theft and bank fraud. The case moves slow. Detective Mike contacted the medical examiner that performed Catherine's autopsy, and the first thing he said is that he had been wrong about Catherine's time of death. Once he took into consideration the cold temperature in February and the shady area where her body was found, that explained the lack of decomposition, and she could have been there for up to 48 hours. That meant she likely died soon after she disappeared. Detectives had known for a long time that Catherine was last seen on campus leaving her dorm with Jamie, and when detectives initially interviewed Jamie, she had a 30-minute period on the day of Catherine's disappearance that she couldn't account for, and now it made sense. They didn't have enough evidence to arrest her, but Detective Mike didn't give up. He needed to find a copy of her apology to Catherine, her confession. He started asking around and heard that Jamie's stepfather might have a copy. That would be amazing, he thought. So he contacted him and is blown away to discover that he didn't have a copy. He had the original. Tucked away in a locked cabinet, between books and papers, he pulled out the three handwritten pages and handed them to Mike. Detectives took their evidence to the prosecution, who presented it to the grand jury. On Wednesday, November 19, 2008, almost 29 years since Catherine's murder, the grand jury handed down an indictment. Police located Jamie at the homeless shelter in Jackson and arrested her. She was still on probation and was considered a flight risk and held on a $500,000 bond. The Montgomery Advertiser reported that detectives also said she should not be released as she had contacted Catherine's family without telling them who she was. And when they found out it was Jamie, they'd cut off contact with her. As she was led from police headquarters to a car outside, she held her head up high and ignored the questions that reporters asked as she quietly slipped into the front seat. Jamie pled not guilty, and at her trial in May 2010, her defense lawyer tried to point the jury towards Michael, the security guard. But the prosecution put Detective John Wayne Boone on the stand, and he explained there was no evidence that linked him to her death and that he had an airtight alibi as he had been working with another security guard. Then the medical examiner took the stand and testified to his mistake in 1980 on the time of death and corrected it to up to 48 hours. Jamie's lawyer maintained that the letter she wrote was fiction and that she was innocent. He pointed to the night the two gunshots had been heard and a friend of Jamie's took the stand to testify that Jamie had been at her house that night. The jury deliberated for six hours before finding Jamie guilty of murder and sentenced her to life in prison. She was 49 years old. In handing down the maximum sentence, Judge Michael Youngpeter said that he, like the jury, were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of her guilt and that this case had been the most difficult one of his judicial career. Jamie appealed her conviction, and in 2011, her request was denied. 
Catherine's parents, Joanne and Walker, continue to this day to support the school all their children went to, including Catherine. Their grandchildren and great-grandchildren now also attend the Resurrection Catholic School. About Catherine's murder, her mother said that it was the hardest time, not just for us, but for the students. Catherine was loved. They embraced her, grew up with her. Recently, the couple attended their 40-year school reunion. Classmates of Catherine were there in her memory to welcome her parents and to let them know they had not forgotten. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Judy Bueno Ono. She was a nurse and serial killer who almost got away with it. Poisoning for profit, she murdered her husband, boyfriend, and son. Then she bombed her next victim and became the first woman executed in Florida. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.